There we go. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. This is the word of the Lord. All right, starting today with a a quote from my favorite doctor, Miracle Max. Some of you might know Miracle Max from The Princess Bride. Miracle Max famously said, there's a big difference between, can you help me here? Mostly dead and all dead. You got it. I knew I could count on you for that. There's a big difference between mostly dead and all dead. And the Princess Bride, Wesley, whom Miracle Max is helping kind of at the time, is mostly dead. The scripture tells us, and Romans specifically, the last three weeks has told us that all of our conditions, apart from the love and the grace of God in Jesus, is that we are all dead. We're completely dead. Ephesians Chapter 2 tells us that apart from Jesus, we are dead in trespasses and in sin. That's a problem. We want you to hear today that there's a problem in the world. There's a problem in your life. And the problem is that we are spiritually dead. And dead people, I know this is going to surprise you, dead people can't resurrect themselves, it turns out. Dead people can't resuscitate themselves. And further, God, the one true God, is the God of the living, not the dead. And so if we want to be with God, if we want to know God, if we want to live life with God now and forever, we have to be made alive. We have to be brought out of death again into life. We have to be made alive with God and we have to be made alive by God. And that is why the righteousness of God given to us in Jesus, that's why the gospel The gospel is such good news. It's good news because it addresses with great power and effect the real problem, the real problem that all of us face, whether we admit it or not, the problem of sin. So this morning, we're wrapping up uh, the first big section of Romans uh, by looking at how Paul summarizes for us the gravity of sin. Paul systematically taken down every single type of person over these last few verses. He talked about how the irreligious person doesn't measure up and deserves God's judgment. The moralistic person doesn't measure up. The religious person doesn't measure up. He summarizes in verse nine. He says, all of us, whether Jews or Greek are under sin. And then in nine through 20, what Karen read for us, Paul sort of, well, he summarizes. He gives an all embracing conclusion about the bad news about the real human condition. Some theologians have referred to this human condition as total depravity. 
Some of you may be familiar with that language. This is the classic text for that theological category. And listen, I recognize as we enter the fourth straight week of just getting hammered, hammered home to us, the message of sin and the message of guilt, I realize that you might be tired of that. I'm tired of it. I'm tired of it. Can I just be honest with you? I can't wait to get to Romans 3.21 where the news is good. But, But I think it's important for us to just spend one more week thinking about this, this message of our sinful condition, this message of guilt, because really this kind of message for us can be hope giving. It can. It can be life producing. You know, there's actually something deeply satisfying about knowing that there is a God and that God knows everything about all of your flaws At the deepest core of your being, he sees the darkness of the recesses of your heart that you don't even see. He knows your worst condition, and he says, I love you. I know a way you can be set right with me and with others, and I'm going to do that for you. You know, there isn't much that's more hope-giving than when someone um, just gives you the truth. Not little truisms that make you feel good, but when deep down, you know, you're, you know, you're not that good, but they give you the truth that even though you're a mess, you're loved by God and he is at work in your life, changing you by his grace. You know, not a unique illustration, but I thought this week, you know, if, if a, if a doctor diagnosed me with, with terminal cancer and the doctor said, you've got six weeks to live, but there is one cure that's just been patented and it's just come onto the market. And, but it's a long way away and it's going to cost you a lot of money to get to the cure. I bet that you would do what I would do. I would be, I would be shell-shocked by the pain of the initial news. But then I would do anything. I would give just about anything. I would travel anywhere to get the cure. That's what the, the Bible's doing to us here. That's what God's doing to us through Romans. This is God's kindness to you. He's showing you your true condition. He really is. He's showing you your true condition before he reveals the glorious cure, the cure of Jesus's righteousness given to us for free. So three things that Paul tells us about sin, about your heart and about my heart in his summary of the human condition apart from the grace of Jesus the ungodliness of sin, the pervasiveness of sin, and the universality of sin. We'll move through that together. First, Paul talks about the ungodliness of sin. Maybe that's the most important thing you can know about sin. Sin is ungodly. And by that, I mean sin, in its very essence, is anti-God. Sin is anti-Christ. We see that in two things Paul says in these verses. In verse 11, Paul says, no one seeks for God. And in verse 18, he says, there is no fear of God before their eyes. No one seeks for God, he says. To be in sin means that we do not go after God. We do not pursue God. We do not look for God. To be in sin means we want nothing to do with God. Sin is the revolt of the self against God. Sin is the self-deification that exists in all of our lives. It's our attempt to kick God off of the throne room of our hearts and to seat ourselves there instead. Sin is the reckless determination that each one of us have 
the reckless determination we have to be in control, to be the end-all, be-all, to call the shots, to have the world revolve around us. And, And listen, listen, that's important to understand because it tells us that sin is not primarily, sin is not primarily things that we do that are bad. That's what most of us were taught growing up. We don't become sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. Sin is primarily our condition, not our actions. Sin means that we are all co-conspirators with the power of the evil one against God. As my hero C.S. Lewis said it, fallen man is not simply an imperfect creature who needs improvement. He is a rebel who must lay down his arms. Paul tells us that no one seeks for God. Sin is ungodly. He also tells us that sin means, verse 18, there's no fear of God before their eyes. What that means is that people in their natural condition do not reverence God. They don't adore God. They don't worship God as they ought to. What that means is what Proverbs, Proverbs 19 or 9 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. So that verse is saying that if we approach God rightly, everything else is going to fall into place. If we approach God rightly, everything else is going to fall into place. But sin means no one approaches God rightly. No one treats God as God. Rather, we ignore God. We disregard God. We wish God didn't exist. We wish he would just leave us alone. If you know your Bibles, perhaps you remember One of the first stories in the Bible, in Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve eat the forbidden fruit. Do you remember that? They're in the garden, and God comes, and he approaches them, and they're hiding from God. And he finds them, and he says, where were you? And do you remember what Adam says? He says, we hid from you because we were, what, anybody know? Afraid. We were afraid. So they fear God there, but not in the way that we're supposed to. They fear God because of guilt. They have a craven scary fear of God, not an adoring, reverent fear of God. It's, it's really a great irony there that their sinful fear led them to run away from God, whereas holy fear leads you to run to God. So the ungodliness of sins means that none of us seek God, none of us fear God, none of us treat God in our heads or in our hearts the way that God deserves to be treated. Now, a lot of you, maybe some of you, probably all of you, should feel a little bit uncomfortable with Paul's assessment. Maybe some of you disagree with it, especially when he says no one seeks for God. Maybe Paul's just doing a little preacher exaggerating there. Um, That tends to happen, by the way, from time to time. Um, You might be thinking something like, well, Paul's gone a little too far here. I, I know all kinds of people who are seekers, who are interested in God. They're not Christians. They don't go to church. Uh, but I know people that pray. I know people that are searching profoundly for God. And then there's people from other religions that seem to be seeking after God. Paul's exaggerating here. This, this can't be exactly what he means. Paul's not exaggerating. It's important to note, though, that Paul doesn't say no one seeks spiritual blessings from God. That's not what he says. He also doesn't say no one seeks for God to answer their prayers. Nor does he say... No one seeks for spiritual power or spiritual experiences. He doesn't say that because all kinds of people, as we all know, just through life experience, do exactly those things. What Paul says is that no one on his or her own naturally wants to find 
God. You may have an intellectual interest in the possibility of God. You may have a philosophical conviction that there is a God. But that's not seeking God. Seeking God is a passion to meet him, to know him, to love him, and to be loved by him. You may have a problem in your life and uh, realize you need forgiveness or peace or power or wisdom or even an experience. But none of those things is the same as seeking for God. To put it another way, all of us in all kinds of ways seek things from God. But none of us seeks God on our own. Seeking God means you're trying to get into God's presence. But what did Adam and Eve do? They ran away from God's presence, and that's what I do, and that's what you do in our sinful condition. Seeking God means to desire God above everything and above everybody. Seeking God means you're anxious to promote God's glory. Seeking God means that God is the center of your life all the time in every place. Can you say that that's true of yourself? Not with a shred of integrity. You can't. Because you're all dead apart from Jesus. And I'm dead apart from Jesus. Not just mostly dead. All dead. So since no one, since no one seeks after God, since no one reveres or adores God, what has to happen? God has to seek us. Did you hear that? God has to seek you. God is the only real seeker. God is the pursuer. God is the initiator. And listen, listen to me. There's good news for you today. I don't care who you are. I don't care what's happened in your life this week. I don't care about your past. There's good news for you today. The good news is that Jesus Christ came to seek. Jesus Christ came to seek and to save the dead, the lost. He came to bring back to life those who have been buried six feet under spiritually. Maybe you're here this morning. Maybe you're here this morning just so that you can hear these words. Maybe you're here so you can hear that God is seeking you today. God is seeking you. You may have spent your life running away, wishing you were God and he was not. But God loves you. God forgives you. God sends his Holy Spirit and will send his spirit even now to enlighten you, to show you what's true about yourself and what's true about him. Are you going to respond to his seeking, to his love, to his offer of forgiveness? Because right now, in the moment, God calls you and asks you to trust him, to turn from sin and to believe The ungodliness of sin is laid out by Paul here. Secondly, he tells us a summarizing thing about sin. Sin is pervasive. There's two ways in which he teaches us the pervasiveness of sin. The first is back in verse 9, if you'll look there with me. Uh, Paul says, Jews and Greeks alike are under sin. It's interesting he says that. He doesn't say Jews and Greeks commit sin. Jews and Greeks do bad stuff. Jews and Greeks don't do good stuff. That's all true. What he says, though, is that Jews and Greeks alike, all of us, are apart from God's grace in our lives under sin. Sin so pervades our lives and our world that apart from Jesus, we're all under it. It dominates us. It defines us. Sin is a weight that holds us down. It's an oppressive, crushing burden. That's that's the idea. Ben, my uh, eight-year-old son, almost eight, my almost eight-year-old son, and I, 
have like an ongoing wrestling match. Uh, I wrestle Ben all the time. It's what fathers do with their sons often. And, and uh, here's the deal. Uh, I have a strategy with Ben. Ben's quicker than me. And unquestionably, Ben has more endurance than me. Um, but I've learned that in wrestling with my eight-year-old, if I can just grab him and uh, get on top of him and get him under me, <clears throat> he has no shot. Uh, brilliant strategy, I know. Uh, there's no way Ben can get me off of him, so I can pin him every time, and I still am undefeated and hope to remain so for the next 25 or 30 years. Um, there's no way Ben can get me off. My, my weight is too much for eight-year-old Ben. That's what sin has done. Sin's so pervasive, sin's so dominant that its weight crushes all of us. So our standing is defined, apart from Jesus, our standing is defined as being first under sin. Listen to uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a preacher from the 20th century. He says, the Bible does not say, is he a good man? The Bible does not ask how much good he does or whether he is respectable. It does not ask those questions at all. It says every man is either under sin or under grace. In other words, we must always think of ourselves not primarily in terms of addictions or of particular things that are true about us. It is our whole condition that matters. Let me give an analogy about that. Uh, If you were to visit a foreign country, which I'm certain many of you have, and you get to the customs gate, the first thing they want to know about you, the first thing they want to know about you, it's not the color of your eyes, it's not your social security number, unless you're in Russia. Don't give them that, by the way. Um, It's not your bank balance. It's not whether you're a nice person or a mean person. The first thing they want to know is what? What country you're from? Are you a citizen of this country? Or are you a foreigner, right? They want to know what realm you belong to. That's what Paul's saying. He's saying that we belong to the realm of sin. Every one of us, whether Jew or Greek, we're all under sin. He's also making this point in a different way in verses 13 through 17. That's kind of like a cocktail of Old Testament quotes there. Paul gives seven or so quotes, mostly from Psalms. There's one from Proverbs, one from Isaiah. And he's throwing out quote after quote after quote to make the point that sin is pervasive, that it affects every single aspect of our lives. There's no part of who we are that escapes the radical corrupting influence of sin. Look at what he says. Verse 10, no one is righteous. No, not one. Our legal standing before God is corrupted by sin. That's what he means. Verse 13, their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive the venom of asps, that's a snake, is on their lips. Our words are corrupted by sin. Verse 15, their feet are swift to shed blood in their paths are ruin and misery. Our decisions and our life paths that we walk on are corrupted by sin. Verse 11, no one understands. Our minds and our thinking and our intellect are corrupted by sin. The point is, that every part of us is severely affected and damaged beyond repair by the power of sin. That's what's meant by that phrase I used a minute ago, total depravity. Total depravity doesn't mean that every one of us is as bad as we possibly could be. Thank God that's not true. We're not all as bad as we possibly could be. What 
Paul's saying here, and what that theological term means, is that we're all stained. We're all stained in every area by sin. There's no part of us that has escaped its corrupting influence. Paul's not speaking about the degree of sin in each of us. He's speaking about the extent of sin in each of us. Sin affects our minds. Do you know what that means? It means that every one of us is at least a little bit wrong about everything. And some of us are probably a lot wrong about a lot of things. We don't like that, by the way. Sorry. Send me an email later. I'll delete it. Um, (laughs) Sin radically affects our minds. Sin radically affects our hearts. So we're all inherently self-lovers first and not God-lovers or neighbor-lovers. Sin radically affects our wills. So none of us on our own would ever choose or will or desire to come to God. That's why Paul says later in Romans chapter 8 that those who are in the flesh, those who are under sin, cannot, are not able to please God. This is hard stuff to hear. And I'm going to make it just a little bit more personal for you. Do you know that this is true of you apart from God's intervention? Do you know that? Do you know that this is true of you? apart from the love of Jesus for you, you are not going to get better on your own. I hate to go to the doctor. Even Miracle Max. I would hate to go see Miracle Max even. I don't want to go to the doctor. When I get sick, and Marianne sometimes will say, you should go see a doctor, I'm like, I'll get better on my own. I'll get over it. And usually I do, thankfully. Uh, That's not the case here. You're not going to get better on your own. You're not going to become more obedient on your own. You're not. You are not going to move closer to God on your own. You will never do that. God must move closer to you. And God has done exactly that in and through Jesus. So listen, listen. Listen to the call of God and respond. Respond right now, knowing that if you respond in faith, even if you do that, it's because he's drawing you powerfully to himself by, by his spirit. You know, to go back to Ben and I, someone needs to come and kick me off of Ben in order for Ben to be free. Ben can't do it. He's unable to do it. In a million tries, he couldn't get me off of him. But Jesus comes and Jesus kicks sin off of us. Jesus brings us into his power, kingdom by his power and by his grace. But he only does that when you see your hopeless condition under sin, because that's what's going to force you to look to someone outside of you, to someone more powerful than you, to someone who's better than you and holier than you, to a righteousness that is not procured by you, to a crucified and risen king. Sin's ungodly. Sin's pervasive. Last point, the universality of sin. Verse 10, Paul summarizes our condition. There is none who is righteous. And notice how he emphasizes it. No, not one. Just in case we didn't get the point. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All universally have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. And again, no one does good. Not even one. There are no exceptions, he's saying. Sin has universally affected every human who has ever lived except for Jesus. Now, remember when Paul's speaking about the universality of sin here, the Bible's not interested, and God's not interested in comparing people to each other. That's what we do, right? We love to do that. We're masters at comparing ourselves to others. 
We're experts at comparing ourselves with others. We're experts in taking God's scale and lowering it to a standard that we feel pretty good about, which is why Paul spent so much of chapter 2 and chapter 3 condemning the moralistic and the religious people. But God's not interested in that. God's interested, when he uses the language like good and righteous here, in our full obedience, in our full adherence to his will. God's interested, as Jesus says, in us loving him with Not some of your heart and soul and mind and strength, not 80% of it, not some of your heart and soul and mind and strength on Monday afternoons, not some of your heart, soul, mind and strength on Sundays when you're in church. No, all of your heart, soul, mind and strength. That's what God's standard is. And the point Paul makes is that everyone fails in this. Everyone, whether you're moral or immoral, whether you're religious or irreligious, Jews and Greeks alike are in the same boat in the sense that sin exists in their lives. So when Paul says here, there's no one who does good, he doesn't mean that there's no one who does good by our standard. Of course there are people that do good by our standard. There's all kinds of people in this city right now who aren't Christians, who do a lot of things a lot better than me. And those things are good. Paul's not saying that. Paul's saying that no one does good in the sense in which God defines good serving him and others with a pure heart, living for the glory of God. No one does that because all of us, even on our best days, are eminently self-seeking. I mean, think about it this way. This, this is like a directional idea that Paul gives us here. Imagine that there's three men and all of them have to swim from the west coast of California, from, let's say, San Francisco Bay to Hawaii. That's the goal. First guy doesn't know how to swim. He makes it 30 feet. He drowns and he dies. The second guy, pretty decent shape. He swims for three miles and he drowns and he dies. And the third guy is Michael Phelps. Michael Phelps goes, I don't know what, 30 miles. And then he drowns and he dies. Well, Michael Phelps was a heck of a lot better than the guy that couldn't swim. But none of them even came close None of them even approximate reaching the goal. Similarly, there's all kinds of religious and nice and moral people in the world who could swim the proverbial 30 miles. But none of them are making it to Hawaii. Neither they nor the pagan terrible people come close to a righteous heart. So they're all lost. They're all condemned to perish because sin is universal. It's universal in its final impact. It, it separates every single one of us, every single one of us from the living and loving God. So the sway of sin, wrapping up, the sway of sin means that every one of us have to abandon our bad deeds, obviously, But it also means we have to abandon our pretended good deeds. (laughs) The difference between a Christian and someone who's just a moralist is that a Christian doesn't just repent of the bad stuff he or she does. A Christian repents of his pretended goodness. A Christian repents of his or her fake, false, sham righteousness. As C.S. Lewis says, you know, we have to lay down our arms as rebels, but we also have to lay down our righteousness. We have to admit to sin and admit to the fact that our efforts at morality can't cover for our sins. We can't get in the black, which is why God gives us these chapters. He takes us to the end of ourselves. 
Are you at the end of yourself? Man, I hope you are. I hope you are at the end of your rope, at the very last string of your tether. Because only when you get there and then let go and start to fall can you be caught by grace. Only then can you understand the power of a righteousness from Jesus given to you for free. The way to God, the the way to life, the way to peace, the way to hope, the way to eternity, it's wide open for you right now. It's wide open for you right now. Because God justifies ungodly people. It's wide open. All you need is need. All you need is nothing. Do you have nothing? Or are you still trying to bring something? Nothing can keep you from Jesus as long as you realize the only thing that holds anyone back is the delusion that they can satisfy God on their own. It's when you realize that nothing in my heart I bring, nothing in my hands I bring, right? Simply to the cross I cling. That, that's when grace becomes real. That's when grace changes you. It's, it's when you realize that your sins are many, but his mercy is more. That transformation happens. And so really the question that these chapters are peltering you with again and again and again is, do you see yourself rightly? And if so, will you come? Will you lay down your arms? Will you lay down your pretended goodness and righteousness? Will you bank on the fact that Jesus really is enough for you? That Jesus alone is for you in the gospel. And if you will, there's good news. There's great news. God accepts and embraces you fully. And you're safe. You're safe with him now. And you're safe with him forever, no matter what. Let's pray.